I'm Tommy Williams, and we welcome you back to the Summer Together series uh, of podcasts. This is week three, and we're enjoying a time with Dr. Jack Levison, who comes uh, from Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. Um, Jack teaches Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew at Perkins, and we're really glad to have you, Jack. What a pleasure to be here. So this Summer Together series, um, again, is meant to have something common that we're learning together over the course of the summer and St. Paul's centers its worship experiences around the lectionary scriptures which provide something from the Old and New Testaments and gospel to uh, to reflect on and preach and study uh, each week and so this summer we're going through primarily the book of Genesis which is what we'll be reading and reflecting on in worship uh, so Jack and I are talking about Genesis with a few dovetails into other places from time to time um, so over the last couple of podcasts, uh, we have been talking about uh, the book of Genesis and uh, how important it is to um, understand the promises of God and the threats that come to play, come into play in the book of Genesis um, that threaten that promise. And those threats vary, right? So you, Jack's helped us talk about uh, what those threats are and um, how important it is for um, people of faith to stay centered in those promises, um, to anticipate maybe those threats, uh, um, and to stay centered in those promises. And these stories in Genesis, Jack, are just ripe with uh, drama um, through this family tree, Abraham, Sarah, um, and, and on down. Um, but really, it's a, quite a human story. It's the story of God. It's the story of us, right? Um, so we're working through these uh, themes together, um, and we come to, to Genesis 22, which is a really, really difficult one, um, when uh, Abraham is bringing Isaac uh, for sacrifice. Um, so when we pick up there and, and talk about that, especially in connection uh, to the other stories we talked about the last couple of weeks. How about we don't? Okay, all right. <laughs> this is such a difficult, wrenching story. Yeah, it is. But let's put it in its context. Uh, I think it might be important because this is an easy story to take out of context. Genesis 22, the Jews would call it the Akedah. This is that, even in the Jewish tradition, a very, very powerful story. Um, interestingly enough, it doesn't get used much in the New Testament church to, to, to describe the death of Jesus. Um, there are just glimpses of it and scholars debate how much of the Akedah actually um, informs New Testament ideas of the death of Jesus. And not so much, just that's a freebie there, throwing that into the ring as I, as I avoid this very difficult Because there are many others that do, right? Suffering servant in Isaiah. Yeah, you have that one places, more. But, but not this one. Not so this one. And it's one of the puzzles. They've said, why did this text, you know, a willingness to sacrifice a son, why did this not play out more in the earliest church? But of course, you can't answer the question. You can't answer a negative question. Why is it not there? And that kind of thing. But, but I think before we go into this really powerful story, it's interesting just to go back a few verses. Because in chapter 21 at the end, and weren't we in 21? Yeah, we were in 21 last week. But at the end of this chapter, it's Abraham's relationship with the guy, a guy by the name of Abimelech. And they actually have a treaty together. And then 
I'll make the point in a minute, but I think it's a point worth making. Sure. When Abraham complained in verse 25, right before the sacrifice of Isaac, when Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made an agreement, a covenant. They cut a covenant, and so on and so forth. Okay. If you only read Genesis 22, or even some of these lectionary texts, you'd think, wow, God is moving and active and all these sorts of things. But a lot of life is lived on the level of, hey, your guys took my well. And there's other ones, and the other stories where the people are filling in the wells, Abraham wells, and they keep filling in the wells. I mean, what you needed in the ancient world was water. I mean, it was the one thing you really needed. But I think it's interesting, before we go into this very powerful Genesis 22 story, to realize it happens in the midst of dealing with things like the plumbing. Right. The fence, like, hey, the fence, the fence is falling down. Are you going to buy? Are you going to pay for it? Am I going to pay for it? Or am I going to pay for very it? Very ordinary. Uh, Yes. Neighborly sorts of concerns, yeah. Yes. So basically, out of the blue, and then notice the way Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac begins. After these, these things, things, just, well, in the course of life, sometimes you get hit with really hard challenges. Mm -hmm. But it, in order to understand the challenge, you've got to understand that moments before Abraham's dealing with a well, and making Abimelech feel okay, and making himself feel okay, so that he can have access to the well that Abimelech's guys have stolen, but Abimelech won't fess up to it. You know? Right, and, right. And it's in the context of normal human concourse right. that after these things, God tested Abraham. So we need to realize that the testing of God comes in the context of everyday realities, like fences falling down. Right, right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden things happen that all of a sudden matter a whole lot more than your fence. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the water is not unimportant to Abimelech or to Abraham, right? But it, all right. of a sudden this thing happens, right? And everything yeah. stops. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but, but still, you know, Abraham, the very last verse before this, and Abraham resided as an alien many days in the land of the Philistines. He's an alien. He's in transit again. Right. He gets it. He knows what it's like to be subject to someone else's land, to someone else's possessions. And so he is, he is manipulating the situation by giving Abimelech these things, by working to get these things so that he can have access to a well. And it's in that context of living as an alien, trying to manipulate the world enough that he can have something to drink, that boom, he gets hit by a two by four in the middle of the head. Yeah. And so, God says Abraham. God says Abraham. And and it uses, I don't know what the Hebrew says. You might say on this tested. After these things, these, these things, meaning this this whole talk about the water with the, the neighbor. And after these things, God in the NRSV says, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, here I am, and then gives him the instruction. What do you make of that God tested Abraham? Well, I think this is very much the same word as where the Israelites test God in the wilderness. I think that's exactly the same word. 
yeah, the people put me to the test. So it's not a particularly positive thing. You know, it, you know after the people come out of Egypt, they, um, they come out and they put God to the test. And one of the names, the places they put God to this called Massa, the other is called Meribah. Massa, that noun, that name is built on the verb that's used in Genesis 2 okay. for testing. So it's a pretty negative term. I mean, God okay. is not just mollycoddling Abraham. God is putting Abraham to the test. Okay. So it's a tough word. It's a tough word. It's a tough especially word. Especially for what that test entails. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, um, I, I don't know how to do this without sort of reading through. The narrative is so powerful. What's so hard for me, Jack, is that it starts off with... Um, with uh, this word from God in the text, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. So it sort of emphasizes how difficult it is, uh, how difficult the ask is. Uh, And we can get to what, you know, how to make sense of this. What does this say about, you know, God? Uh, How are we to understand our God in the context of this story? But but just that even in the front end, the voice of God is said to say, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I mean, emphasizing the, the connection that they have. Yeah, I mean, it just digs in so deeply. I had a Hebrew professor back in grad school, I think it was in an Aramaic class that he, he went, he said, one of the things you learn from this text is reading the gaps. So take your son, to which Abraham in the gap replies, Ishmael? No, your only son. Well, which son is that? I have two. Isaac. Not that one, God. Whom you love. And yeah, I have to say, that stuck with me. That was like 1983, oh, and it was hard. in the course of an Aramaic class. But he said, read the gaps, because clearly the implication is Abraham is talking back, and God is having to tighten and tighten and tighten what's going on. And if, if you remember, the whole ancestral or patriarchal story began in Genesis 12 with something similar. And I think it's really interesting to see it here. And again, this is not my insight. I don't know who, where I read it. But in chapter 12, just at the beginning of it all, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And you have a similar kind of tightening of the noose, if you will. Go from your country. Oh, I'll leave Babel. Yeah, it starts out large. And your kindred. Okay, I can leave cousin Verma. Circle comes a little tighter. A little tighter. Oh, and leave your father's house too. And then you're leaving just about everything. And in fact, he makes the mistake of taking his nephew Lot, who creates all sorts of problems, presumably because he can't let the knot be that tight. I mean, he's not supposed to take his father's uh, relatives, uh, but he does, and Lot right. creates all sorts, of problems. all sorts of problems. So you have this narrowing, these concentric circles that keep narrowing. Leave your country, uh, okay, God, and leave your kindred, 
well, that's going to be hard, but I can do that and leave your father's house. And the amazing thing is that he does that. And it's as if God is putting it to the test on steroids here, you know, with a, with a magnifying glass over Abraham's commitment now. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom I know you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. I mean, Abraham resides as an alien, it says in the verse right before this. Right. And Abraham resided as an alien many days in the land of the Philistines. Can't God let him have a son? I mean, he hasn't got a home. He, ha I mean, he left his home. He left his country. When he was old. When he was old. Yeah. He, you know, he finally had a baby. He's now living an alien in residence again. He's a refugee. And then God has the gall to pile on this refugee one more test, and it's not a happy test. We don't know the ending yet. Right. So it's really, it's, you're right, it's so... So to speak, it's big ask after big ask big after ask. big ask. It is. And how much can one person take in the midst of having to make sure he has a well to drink water out of? Right. Make sure the fences are working or the, the plumbing is working. Make sure the toilet flushes. And then you got the big ask. At the macro to the micro, right? You got to worry about water and yeah. the life of your son. Yes. Uh, right next to each other. Right next to each and other. And I think that's what, again, the Bible puts these stories next to each other. And we read them and say, I have no idea how those two relate. That he was a, an alien in um, the Philistines hoping to get a well and doing all he could, giving them hues and lambs and seven of these and seven of that to make Abimelech happy so that he can have access to a well that Abimelech's men stole. And now he has to give up his son. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what more? Right. What more? So, so Abraham likes to say, read between the gaps. I mean, we don't know where all of the gaps are in the story because we make this quick turn to Abraham rising early in the morning, saddles up right. the donkey, uh, takes some folks with him and with Isaac, takes what he's supposed and to take. And notice what it says, to his two young men, two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. We don't need Isaac. We know the son now, but, but the narrator knows we need to keep hearing it, his son Isaac. Isaac. And in the repetition, the knife goes deeper and deeper and deeper into, into our hearts as we're the readers. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, then, and then back to the, back to the practical stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, he prepares all the things, the, the wood, and gets it cut and set out in place and all the distant, all of the, all the things. Um, and uh, presumably God is um, sort of telling him, that mountain, that spot, go there, do this. Presumably Abraham's doing all of that. Uh, um, and then finally they're alone. Abraham, just Abraham and the boy, not the young men who have come to help. And they go off. Yeah, you stay here with the donkey, the boy and I. And I, I, I actually think this may be the most poignant. I mean, they're all so poignant, but calling him the boy. The boy, is this a distancing? He's, he's just the boy, but everybody knows he's the boy. He's, he's the boy. your son Isaac, whom you love. Whom you love. Right. The boy and I will go over there. We'll worship. And then, of course, the great line, then we'll come back to you. And people love this line because it suggests that Abraham knew it would all turn out okay. Say that again. Say which line there. Yeah. Well, um, and then we will come back to you. 
So you got a couple options. Abraham knows it's going to work out and knows that God will do something and that Isaac will return. The boy will return with him. Or is Abraham lying to them? And we don't know. That's what makes great storytelling. We don't know what's motivating him. That's what makes this story so... There's a book, and we, we need to put this on, on, the, on the Facebook page, the church Facebook page. One of the great books of the last you know, 40 years, uh, Robert Alter, who is a Jewish literary critic, who wrote the... Um, what is it called? I'm thinking of the chapter title, The Art of Reticence, but... Uh, we can look it up. The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he talks about the way biblical authors tell stories. And this is a case where so little is told about what Abraham feels. You do not know what Abraham feels. It doesn't say, and Abraham was grieved in his heart. And Abraham, with, with Sarah, she deceived, right? Sarah laughed, and then she deceived them. She lied and said, I didn't laugh. We know she's lying. There's, we don't know here. We are complete outsiders to this story. We don't know what Abraham feels. We don't know if it's intense grief. We don't know if the grief is covered up by the daily activities of, of cutting wood and finding his way. We don't know whether the boy means a distancing or endearment. We don't know whether he, when he says, we will come back to you, he's lying to the servants or saying, God will provide something and I know Isaac will come back. We do not know. And to take one or the other and make it the truth is the wrong way to read this text. It is full of ambiguity because at this point in the story, we're not given any inside views of Abraham or Isaac or the boys or the servants. So is it right to say, that's really interesting. So is it right to say that the, to read this story, you've, you've got to really stay faithful in uh, going sort of line by line. I mean, just going with the story as it goes, if that makes sense. Yes. And and not trying to sort of tidy up the ambiguity quite yet. Just walk through it. Uh, yes. And at this point, you've got Abraham and the boy Isaac. You've got the two men's servants. They're leaving behind as they go closer to the place where... Uh, Abraham believes he's supposed to sacrifice his own son. And that's where it is. Yeah. And sometimes with deep grief, you simply need to be there. You don't need to psychologize it. You don't need to figure out what the person is saying. We don't, why did they say that? Sometimes doing that just screws everything up. Sometimes in the presence of the deepest grief, it's good just to be and allow, allow the person if they want to come out of their story, but not try to keep going into their story and understand it. How do we understand grief like this? I mean, the man is an alien trying to get water one minute. The next minute, he's trying to understand why God might be doing We don't even know what he's thinking. Forgive me. We don't even know what he's thinking. So yeah, we're walking the story with them. And that, that's yeah. the goodness of the story. If we come to the end of this with a moral of the story, we've ruined it. Hmm. We're, we have to read it line by line. This is where Israelite storytellers were at their best. So yeah. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and notice how it's slowing us down. We want to know what's going to happen. Do we really care that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering? No. But it slows it down and it, it puts the story right in front of us. 
and laid it on his son Isaac. Again, his son Isaac. We know it's Isaac. God's already narrowed it down. And carried, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the, and this is, again, the poignancy of this. So the two of them walked on together. We'll see this line again. So the two of them walked on together. Mm. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father. And Abraham said, Here I am, again, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. My son. How many times does Isaac, does Abraham have to say, my son, my son, his son. The relational is so strong here. Yeah. I don't know if it's just, I'm probably betraying my own sensibilities, but I just, I don't know how I can read that with, without uh, seeing that tenderness, uh, that relational um, identification. Um, and maybe it's Abraham trying to make sure Isaac understands his love for him um, because Abraham's not sure what's going to happen. Or maybe he's so sure that God will provide that he's reassuring his own son, my yeah. son. You know. My son. You're my son. I, you're the promised son. You're, you're it. And we don't know. But I do think as it goes on and you keep hearing his son, Isaac, my son, father, here I am, my son, um, Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You do get the sense of intimacy here. Yeah. You do. Yeah. And then, I mean, then the sandwich here, you already had, so the two of them walked on together in verse 6, and now at the end of verse 8, so the two of them walked on together. together. Yeah. And right now the camera is, we're standing down on the ground, and they're ascending up the mountain, and you're seeing them from behind. Mm -hmm. The two of them walked on together. So they've put the camera where we're, we're one of the servants, really, and they're walking on together. Yeah. So, um, you know, it comes to, to the, they find that place, and he's tying up Isaac and uh, um, lays him there, and then he reaches out his hand to get the knife. And it says the knife in order to kill kill his son. His that, son. His son. That's right. Um, and then there's the intervention. <laughs> yeah, thank God, the intervention. Thank God for the intervention. And then we'll want to get to what we make of the intervention and the whole thing uh, without trying to moralize it, I guess, as you say. Um, but we know the story finishes where they're indeed what Abraham either believes or hopes for, there is a lamb that yeah. is provided from the other side. Yeah, so you got the ram in the thicket, yep. thankfully, yeah. Um, so, you know, he does get out of it. And, uh, and again, not before God says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything, or I think it might be an angel, whatever. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And again, you know, bringing back how how personal it is but we do have the ramp I you know I, actually my colleague Roy uh, Heller preached one of the really great sermons I've heard at Perkins Chapel on this and he actually thinks Abraham failed the test 
that if Abraham had been more compassionate, he never would have let this happen in the first place. It's a really interesting sermon, and it was a very powerful sermon. Um, I was taken up in the sermon. Afterwards, I thought, I'm not sure, because there does seem to be approval of Abraham in the story. But he said, Abraham's not compassionate enough. Um, had he been more compassionate, he wouldn't have let this happen. But the point is, this is how the story unfolds. But I think it's too easy to rush to the end of the story and miss the powerful image of the two of them walking on together. I think when I, I, whenever I read this, I can't help but think of it. When Jeremy was my son, he's now 21, he loved Legos and he'd sit in the living room for hours and play Legos. And sometimes I would stand in the doorway and just watch, standing outside his world. And I remember that the sun, at where, where the Legos were, the sun would show through his young boy ears and they were kind of luminescent because they were so thin. And I was looking from behind at my son playing Legos and, and, the, and the light coming through his ears and the, the sense of vulnerability and intimacy and looking on, not being part of it. I played with him all the time, but not being a part with him, but, but looking on, you could appreciate him from afar with deep love. And that's what I think this story gives us. We can be empathetic even as we're outsiders to the, the horrific grief that's going on here in the cutting of the wood, in the conversation, in the constant reference to son, his son, Isaac, my son. You know, the whole thing, um, the whole thing is set up as a, as a test. God tested Abraham. So without sort of trying to put a bow on it or whatever, Jack, um, at the end of it, what should readers, faithful readers, be thinking is the test? What is, or is that really the way we're, is that preface to the story the way we are to understand the story? Um, uh, what was being tested here? Um, or is that really the most important thing? I think it is important. I mean, I wish it weren't there. I wish God weren't testing Abraham. I wish we just had this story. Then, then, then Abraham would really be gruesome if it weren't, you know, the call of God. So I think this is one of those threats. I think, I mean, uh, that uh, these great demands. But, but what I will say is, as a Christian here, as a person of faith, what I will say is the way the story continues, this isn't about so much about Abraham as a person, as an individual. Notice that after, after the ram comes and they're done, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. So the first time was, Abraham, hold back your hand. But the second time, after it's all done, the, the angel speaks again. And this is just as important. It's not as dramatic, but it's just as important. And said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this and you've not withheld your son, your only son, I'll indeed bless you and I'll make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies and so on and so forth. So the point of this is what happens here is tied to the nations. 
It's not just a private little experience of faith. I mean, this happened as sort of prelude to all the nations will be blessed. And that was spoken in chapter 15 of Genesis and in chapter 17 of Genesis. And, you know, it's been spoken again and again. And now at the far side of grief, we hear the promise again, again and we say, I get it. I know what this promise is going to require for Israel to become a blessing to the nations. Isaac is a crucial part of that part. story. Absolutely. Jack Levison, thank you so much. Yeah, that wasn't the final word on that, was that? <laughs> Tommy, do you want the final word on uh, that text? I don't know that I, I have a final the... word, maybe ever, on that text, no. but it's been a fascinating tour through it, Jack. Thank it's you. It's a beautiful for... text, tragic text. Thanks for helping us with it. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs>